It's good to sing with, and it's good to worship with, even people when they're singing before us. We worship with them, don't we? And that's, uh, that leads well into what we're going to do this morning. You, if you've been here before, you know what this portion of our service is. But I want to remind you as we go into this, what the goal or what the aim with preaching is. See, we've worshipped in song, and we've worshipped in prayer, and we've worshipped in the giving of our tithes and offerings. And we even worshipped in one of my favorite parts, just saying hi to one another. And now we worship through the teaching of the Word. See, every time we look at Scripture through the spoken word of preaching, there's a distinct and very important goal that we need to realize. This is God's means of proclamation to the church. And this isn't just merely a monologue. This is a worship session together. Amen? So what we do this morning as we open up the word as we get to worship the living God. This is a big deal, a special thing. And so as we go to the word with humility, as we open it, as we understand it, we do this as an offering, as a worship. And so let me summarize that. My, my goal here this morning, if you will, is this. The, the spoken word, the preaching of the word is for the conviction of sinners. That is, if you're categorically not a believer, that you would be turned to Christ, that you'd be convicted by the Word of God, and that you'd turn to Him in faith and repentance. If you're in the body this morning that is a Christian or a true believer in Christ, that you'd be edified, that you'd be built up. So three things, that you'd rejoice in victory, that you'd say, thank you, Lord, I think I'm, by God's grace, by your grace, I'm doing that well in my life. I see signs of victory in that area. As we go through the word, that as you see sin in your life, either by commission or omission, that you'd repent of that, that you'd ask forgiveness for that. And thirdly, just as those two just sang, that Jesus would be glorified, that he would be magnified, that his name would be high and lifted up this morning, that you would go away from here this morning adoring more, worshiping more, and loving the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's our goal. That's our aim as we set forth. We're going to do that through a text in Hebrews, okay? So it's important that you have a Bible with you. If you have your own, awesome. Open it to Hebrews 10. If you don't, grab the pew Bible in front of you. You can turn to page 1068 in your pew Bible and follow along. Okay, this text we have, uh, someone asked Pastor John, Pastor John Montoya one time, is it hard to, to fill in for Brian? He said, well, in some sense, yes, but in another sense, no, because when you get to fill in, you get to pick whatever text you want. And that's what I've done this morning. I've picked a text that I love that is, is very dear and near to me. Now, all of the word is inspired, but this one just has the aroma and the taste and the flavor of Christ's work and his personhood. So as we work through it, my prayer is that you would understand that, that you would worship because of that. Verse 19, follow along with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Would you pray with me and ask the Lord to help us? 
God, we've stated and understood the goal here. We want to rejoice and celebrate when we see you working in our lives. We want to repent of known sin. And we want your name to be made great this morning. So may we receive the word with humility and be changed and moved by it. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, I love this text, not just because it's intensely practical and specific, but it is. This is intensely, intensely practical and specific for us this morning. And we see over and over again in Scripture this pattern, if you will. This text is no exception of doctrine and duty or belief and behavior or information and action. You could say it a number of ways. Some people call it indicatives and imperatives. But what we have is information and action. What we're going to call it this morning is reasons and resolves. So if you have your bullets in, if it's helpful for you, turn it over. There's an outline on the back. You can use it. If it's not, put it to the side. Okay. But this is called reasons for resolve. And what we're going to look at this morning is the great and central exhortation in Hebrews. This is a very, very important text, 19 through 25. And it starts this way. Since we have, there's two reasons Two reasons in this text. They both start with since we have. Reason one, since we have. Christ's blood in the new way. Reason two, Christ's priestly role in his church. And then we have three resolves, okay? Three duties, three imperatives that we must do. Resolve number one, draw near in full faith. Resolve number two, hold fast in stable hope. Resolve number three, consider one another in love. Okay, so we're going to look at those together. And if you're like me, you love practical preaching. You want practical things to take home and go and do. But I think you'd agree that whatever is practical, whatever we must do, whatever is exhortive in Scripture must come through a theological grid. It must be built on the foundation of didactic teaching, doctrine. It must come with information. I can't simply give you and tell you what to do without telling you how to do it. We can't have a bunch of exhortation without the information. That's why the author starts this way, therefore. Therefore what? Well, because Christ is better. He's better than what? He's better than angels, than prophets, than the old covenant. The book of Hebrews that we're looking at could very well be called a very long sermon. Okay? Much longer than the one I'll teach this morning, but a very long sermon. Okay? In the first section, if you will, it goes from verse 1, chapter 1, all the way to verse Uh, 18 of chapter 10. That's right before where we picked up. So we're picking up in the second major section of Hebrews. What's contained in that first major section? 10 chapters, 18 verses of what? Christ is better. Then fill in the blank. He is better. He is best. He's a better hope, a better testament, a better promise, a better sacrifice. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. Christ is better. In fact, I think Hebrews 8.1 sums it up fairly well when it says this. Now, the main point, you want to know the main point? He says, here's the main point in what's been said. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This is the point, that we have a, a priest, that we have a prophet, that we have a king who is better. He is best. He is exalted above them. He says, therefore, brothers, have confidence to enter the holy place. What is the holy place? Well, this is the holiest place, the holy of holies. Okay, And it would have been difficult. It's important for us to to understand. It would have been difficult for this Hebrew, this Jewish audience, to have the word confidence and holy of holies in the same sentence. Okay, 
What they knew of the Holy of Holies was this sacred place. And you, need, you and I don't maybe understand this as well, and so we need to have a little bit of background, if you will, for us to understand this. So don't, you don't need to go there, but I'll go to Leviticus 16. And way back in Leviticus 16, Leviticus in Hebrews, by the way, if you want to understand Hebrews, read Leviticus. But in Leviticus 16, we have this. On the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, once a year, the high priest has this instruction to go into the Holy of Holies once a year by very specific means. He's got to put on his linen coat, his linen girdle, his linen turban. He's got to do the various washings and the applyings of blood. He has to wash daily just to go into the holy place. And we're talking about the holiest place. Okay? Now, Jews, to this day, have a great fear of stepping where they even thought the Holy of Holies might have been. When I was in Jerusalem, I learned that the, the Jewish people of the day, the Orthodox people of the day, they won't even go up on Temple Mount for fear of stepping on this place accidentally. Enter the Western Wall, okay, or what we sometimes call the Wailing Wall. That's as close as they'll get. It's a, it's a strong idea, strong word. Have confidence or boldness, real openness. Not brashness, not frivolity, but boldness. He tells us that we need to go confidently, and they would have been in need of encouragement for confidence because this would have been a terrifying thing for them. And he's talking here not just about a physical place, but entering the very presence of God. Paul helps us with this idea in Ephesians 3.12 where he says this, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him, that is Christ. Okay, so through Christ through his blood, through his sacrifice, and by our faith in him, we can enter confidently. We don't have to shy away. We go in now confidently. By the way, what's the deal with the blood of Jesus? Well, in God's economy, since the fall, since the ruin, since sin entered through death, what we have is need for atonement. We have the need of blood, the shedding of blood to cover up sins. In fact, only a chapter earlier in Hebrews 9.22, it says this. One might even almost say, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Blood is important. Blood is important. This, uh, if you want to turn, uh, you might not even have to turn the page. Earlier in chapter 10, look at verse 1 with me. For since, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it could never... It could never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to have been offered? Since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Verse 3, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible, catch this, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What is this saying? The blood of bulls and goats are never going to do it. What's the point here? These Old Testament sacrifices, they aren't doing it. In fact, they never did it. They were only a shadow, a foretelling of the good things to come. The sins remain, and the blood of the animals just don't do it. So it makes sense why in Matthew 26, 28, when Jesus is at the Last Supper, he says this, This is my blood of the new covenant, shed for many for the remissions of sins. That's good news. That's a good thing. So we got to ask, what is the efficacy of this blood or what's the usefulness of this blood for us? Well, we can have confidence 
to enter, verse 20, by a new and living way that He opened or He inaugurated through us, through the curtain or veil that is through His flesh. He gave us a new and a living way as opposed to an, what? An old and a dead way that was never really, we learned, a way to begin with. It was only a shadow of the good things to come. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that a dead animal could never make someone alive? If you think about it, the blood of bulls and goats could never atone. But a living Savior, oh, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? We serve a living Savior, and this is a new and living way because we serve a living Savior. He's called the living stone in 1 Peter 2.4. He's called the living bread in John 6.51. A living way because a living Savior. And the word we have here for new, it's not the normal word for new found in the New Testament. In fact, it's the only time we find it here in the New Testament. And it means this. It means freshly slain or newly killed. Okay? It means new not in the sense of recent, for we serve the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth but it means newly slain or freshly killed. That's kind of gory, isn't it? I think I've been at the blood drives here at Grace with some of you guys, and you faint at the mere mention of blood and needles, so you might want to plug your ears as we talk about this. It's gory for a reason. It's gory in the sense of that this blood must atone. The water and the blood that from thy wounded side doth flow be for sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me whole. This is an important concept. The blood of the Old Testament, it had to be offered when it was warm and new and fresh, before it coagulated, before it had cooled down and clumped up. Okay? And as such, the blood of our Savior is always new and fresh and warm, waiting to cleanse sinners like you and I. It is always good. It is always fresh as the day that it happened. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow, no other fount I know. Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. The Savior, this blood, he opened wide the narrow gate that we may enter in. Justin, if you'd put that picture up there, I wanted to show you guys just for an illustration uh, to help you guys understand a little bit. This is a real simple drawing, but it says in the next part here, the curtain or the veil, which is his flesh. And the veil or the curtain uh, it was between the two parts of the tabernacle where the high priest passed once a year. So if you can see the outer court, okay, they had to do the washings. You have the golden lampstand, the, uh, the tables, all that outside in the outer court. Or excuse me, the golden lampstand was inside the holy place. But then between the holy place and the holy of holies, there's this curtain, large curtain. Okay? The holy of holies is only 10 by 10, but a big curtain separates it from the holy places. And the holiest of holies was protected by this veil or this curtain. And what happened when God the Father, listen, when he crushed God the Son on the cross, when he put his wrath upon him for our sins, the curtain was torn. The veil was torn. It was rended from top to bottom. So we can freely enter. Now we can boldly enter. We can rightly go in because the veil's been torn. In the same manner that the veil was torn, the flesh of God the Son was torn on the cross. It was pierced and He bled that we may enter in, that we may have a right to go confidently, that we may go boldly into the holiest place. That is a precious truth, isn't it? What a glorious Savior. Both His flesh and the veil were a medium, if you will, of access to God. Both the flesh and the veil were torn that we might enter in. Do you get this? 
Are you tracking with me still? Thank you, Justin, for putting that picture up there. So I was reading through this. I thought of that song. Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? What a savior we have. What a God who bled and died on the cross. And so in staying with the theme of Hebrews, we find this. Listen, in summary, Christ did perfectly and literally what the Levitical priests, the Old Testament priests, only did figuratively and imperfectly. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. Christ did perfectly and literally what the Levitical priests could only do imperfectly and figuratively. Okay? So that's reason number one, Christ's blood in the new way. We move to reason number two, Christ's priestly role in his church. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, you've heard me talk about the priest, the Old Testament language is consistent here. Uh, this, this passage, you don't have to turn there, but it has heavy contact, if you will, with chapter 4, earlier in Hebrews, verses 14 through 16. I'll read it to you because I think it, it helps us here. It says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way who has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. We have a great priest who can now sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted and yet remains perfect. And so his sacrifice now remember, before only the high priest or Aaron, take for example, could go in and he could wear the names of the tribes on his shoulders and he would wear the 12 stones of remembrance around his chest. But the rest of Israel, as Aaron went in, they stood outside and trembled as Aaron went into the holy places. Now, if you will, we've watched Christ go in. Christ has made the way. The veil has been torn. And we go boldly in. We enter in. So now we've entered, we've followed Christ in, if you will, and we have our foundation or our grid or our base for our imperatives here. Are you ready? Imperative or resolve, number one, draw near in full faith. Verse 22, draw near, let us draw near with a true or a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water says, let us. This is the beginning of three let us clauses that are going to establish our resolves. So in light of these two reasons, in light of these two truths, let us do these three things. Let us perform these three things. I've called them resolves, not suggestions, because they are. They're resolves. They're imperatives. Do these things. It says, draw near. Draw near to the throne room of grace to find help in time of need. What happens when we draw near to God? I think James 4.8 helps us here. What's it say? It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Great picture of the emotional aspect of repentance. The penitence that goes on when we need to draw near to God. When the sinner needs cleansed. Did you catch the language there? He gives us two ways or two things that we need to know as we draw near. First, this, with a true or a sincere heart. That is to say, a real devotion or a real sincerity without any superficiality. So it shouldn't surprise us that Matthew uh, recorded in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, in his Beatitudes, chapter 5, verse 80, says this, Blessed are the pure in heart. 
for they shall see God. Same idea here. The Jews in the Old Testament, when Moses was instructing them in Deuteronomy 4.29, Moses says, if you go into idolatry, God's going to scatter you. And he says this, he's talking about from where they're scattered. He says, but from there, if you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him, if you search for him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, that is to say, without any superficiality. Two, he says, unwavering confidence, a real boldness here, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And we would expect the same kind of Old Testament language here, wouldn't we? What does this mean? The priest continually, he was washing in basins and he was sprinkling blood. But this change that he's talking about here is not merely external. It's not an external cleansing. This is intensely specific. This is internal. Okay? It makes me think immediately of Ezekiel 36, written hundreds and hundreds of years, obviously, before this. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Listen closely. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Did you catch that? The promise of the new covenant, conversion, taking out that old dead stony heart. I will put my spirit within you, Pentecost. The new covenant, and he says, I will cause you to walk in my ways. And let me just, if I could, just take a small, it's not even really an interlude because Hebrews is so heavy with this kind of language. But I fear here this morning in such a large assembly, I know I've already visited about this with you a little bit, but some of us gather, but we don't draw near. Hebrews 3, 12 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Listen, some of you may have false belief this morning. You may be sitting here week after week, or maybe it's your first week, but you have an evil, unbelieving heart, and you need a new heart. You need a heart of flesh. You need one that's sensitive to God's commands. You need a new spirit within you. You're on the outside, if you will, looking in, watching others go into the Holy of Holies, but you watch from the outside. And so I remind you of Titus 3.5. says, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth. Same language. Washing, rebirth, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You need to be cleansed. You need to be sprinkled inwardly. You need a new heart. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. For the church, for the believers here, this is an ongoing process as well. Not salvation is an ongoing process, but sanctification. This is both positional and progressive, okay? Because we're, we're at once set apart and sanctified, but we're also continually sanctified. How? Well, Ephesians 5.26 helps us. It says this, that he might sanctify her, talking here of the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And so we're washed, we're renewed, we're sanctified continually through the washing of the word. So resolve one, draw near in full faith. Okay, resolve two, verse 23, hold fast in stable hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
two sides here of what the Puritans called the perseverance of the saints. Okay, the human side, if you will, and the divine side. He says, hold fast. And the Jews, the Hebrews here, they would have been tempted to waver, not to hold fast. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of other things going on in their life, he says, hold fast. Hebrews, hold fast to the confession of your hope. Not to salvation, for that's secure. But this is the human side of hold fast. Maybe they desired to go back to the old covenant. They knew so much about it. Maybe they were tempted around other Jews to go back to their old ways. But he says, hold fast to the collective Christian hope. It makes me think of only a few chapters later, Hebrews 12, 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder or the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the author of this faith, of this hope that we hold fast to. Our hope, he says. Notice that it's the person's faith. It's an individual's faith, but its author, its perfecter is God. It's the individual's belief, but it's the maker, if you will, who has given the faith. Listen, a true believer may become discouraged. He may have seasons of doubt. He may have frustration, but he will hold fast because... This is the divine side. He who promised is faithful. Matthew 7 gives us a great picture of the parable. Two buildings. Two buildings. One's built on the rock. One's built on the sand. The storms come. Trials and judgments. One stands and one doesn't. You're familiar with the story. Why does the one stand and the other doesn't? Some of you construction workers are going, that guy was a good builder. He's two by sixes, good, knew what he was doing. It's not that, right? It stands because of its foundation, the bedrock. That is Christ, the faithfulness of God. And this is an axiomatic truth, Christian, that you and I need to hold on to. God is faithful. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous, And upright is he, a faithful God we serve. That's a good thing. That's a good thing for you and I to hold on to. The idea here is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is faithful. The great preventative, Christian, the great preventative of wavering in the Christian faith is a faithful God. The great persevering, if you will, the holding fast that's motivated by a God who holds fast. He is faithful. He's unable to be unfaithful. The character of God, the, the person of Christ, is unbelievable in this letter. The author keeps putting it before us, reminding us, encouraging us. Hold fast because he is faithful. Finally, he proceeds to resolve number three. Consider one another in love. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir or stimulate one another on towards love and good works. And this final let us or resolve is incredibly important. Finally, we pass from the verticals, that is, hold fast in our relationship with God, draw near in faith. Now we go to the horizontals. We go to one another. And he gives a lengthy explanation of passing from the vertical to the horizontal. And he says, consider. No doubt, not just to consider, but to actually carry these things out. Not just to think about it, to do it. And the word here is interesting. It means a careful investigation or a careful study. Implication, you and I have to get to know one another, don't we? We have to consider how we would stimulate one another on towards good deeds. And so you can't walk over to somebody in the pew afterwards and go, Hey, buddy, 
stir it up. Come on, stir it up, stir it up. Love and good deeds, let's go. No, you have to consider and you have to think, if you will, how can I use discernment based on that individual to stir him up? Think of it this year, uh, this way. If I was to go home on my wife's birthday, November 11th, uh, I remembered, and I was to say, baby, I brought you this Remington 12-gauge shotgun. You're not going to believe how beautiful it is. I mean, the chokes, the, the options, it's beautiful. Synthetic stock, she would go, oh, honey, that is so selfish. So inc- She wouldn't say that, right? But that would be so inconsiderate. I was thinking of myself, the shotgun that I could use later on. Now, we must consider others here. The focus isn't on self, but other. Okay? It requires a careful in- in, uh, investigation. Why do, we, why do we investigate carefully? Why do we consider? Not to criticize, not to break down, but to build up, to stir up, to stimulate, or p- to provoke. The word means to stir up or to excite or to call in the action. It's where we get our English word paroxysm. Okay, a sudden attack, usually in medical language. Paroxysm is a violent word. It's a, it's a full word, a stirring up. Most of the time it's used, it means uh, it's in the negative sense or exasperating someone or really irritating someone. But here we have the positive sense of the word, and it means to excite, to stir up. I was greatly helped by Albert Barnes, the New Testament commentator. I hope you will be too. He says this, Men are sometimes afraid of excitement in religion, but there's no danger that Christians will ever be excited to love each other too much or to perform too many good works. Isn't that true? I don't have a lot of people saying, Tanner, hey, back off. You're loving that guy way too much. You're just way too sacrificial. That's not a problem for me. I don't know about you, but that's generally not a problem. Uh, No one has to say, hey, 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 Tanner, back off. Leave some good deeds for me too, right? There's plenty to go around, and we need to stimulate one another on towards love and good deeds. These two ideas, love and good deeds, are often linked together in Scripture. Love being the inner attitude, good deeds being the outer working. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. We remember before God and uh, our God and Father, your work produced by faith, listen, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Love, this kind of love, it's never alone. It's never lived out in isolation. It's never lived out apart from the community of faith, and it's impossible in isolation. Mutual love for one another and self-love can't exist. This is the outer working of good deeds. I love this passage, Titus 2.14. It says, Who gave himself, speaking of Christ again, for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. If I can take some liberty here, excited, adamant about doing good works, zealous for good works. Well, if you're tempted to drift off, if you're getting hungry, if you were up early this morning, zoom back in, because verse 25 is so important. As we finish this out, it says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect meeting together. Was encouraging these Hebrews, don't forsake our own assembling together. Why? Why were they doing this? 
Well, I don't know for sure. I can speculate, but I don't know for sure. Maybe it was like he says in chapter 6. It's verse 12. He says, so that you may not be sluggish. Maybe it was that they were lazy. They had lassitude or a real lack of energy. Maybe they'd grown lazy. Or maybe it's like he says in verse uh, 11 of chapter 5. He says, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Maybe they were sluggish. Maybe they were dull of hearing. In fact, they were. Maybe it was because of persecution. Chapter 12, verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Implication, they were undergoing some persecution. This letter was written sometime around 67, 68, 69 A.D. Persecution had really ramped up. They hadn't been killed. They hadn't been martyred, but they were undergoing persecution, and so they were tempted to draw back and forsake assembling together. I don't know why. I don't know for sure, and I don't know that we can know for sure, but I want to ask you, why are you tempted to give up meeting together? Why are you tempted to give up assembling together? Listen, don't give up getting together in what we do this morning to worship a holy God. I see this often in ministry, and listen, it's more pronounced in the summer. What we have here is not chess club. It's not pickup basketball. What we do this morning is a sacred and special privilege. Many of you know and some of you could testify that there's parts of the world that would think of us, what we're doing here today, you walking in in broad daylight into a public place. Unbelievable. This is where rich and poor, tall and short, white and black, we can all come together to worship the living God. What an incredible privilege. What a special thing. This isn't a new problem, as you could probably imagine. The Hebrews, the Jews were having it. And Calvin, I think, helps us in his uh, commentary. Calvin's writing in the 16th century. He says this, There's so much peevishness in almost everyone that individuals, if they could, would gladly make their own churches for themselves, the warning is therefore more than needed by all of us that we should be encouraged to love rather than to hate, and that we should not separate ourselves from those who are joined together by a common faith. I need that. We need that as the people of God to draw together, to assemble together as we love one another in the church. The Puritans used to call this the market day for the soul. Six other days a week, you sell, you buy, you go about your ways, and on this day, you come to the marketplace of the, of the soul to trade, to encourage one another, to build one another up. I want you to notice why they were to assemble. It says to encourage one another. There's two in this passage that we've already covered, two one another's in this passage, 47 in the New Testament, Okay. And they were commanded to meet together for what they could give to one another, not what they could get. I want you to notice something really important about this. The emphasis is not here on this text on what the believer can get, but what the believer ought to give or contribute to the assembly. When we live our lives in isolation, says Basil, an early church father, when we live our lives in isolation, what we have is unavailable. And what we lack is unprocurable. I agree. 
See, I'm not worried about what we're going to get. I don't know about you, but I started to attend Grace as a young convert because I knew that I was going to get steak and eggs every Sunday morning. I knew that I was going to get spiritually fed. And I know some of you think, well, we're getting a warmed-over omelet this morning. Well, wait until next week. Okay, but you're going to get fed week in, week out with steak and eggs. But what happens if you eat steak and eggs all the time and don't exercise? You get spiritually plump. We have to exercise. We have to work in the body to do the one another's. Brother in Christ, sister in Christ, can I speak to you as a brother in Christ and as a shepherd of the body? I'm not quite sure how some of us fulfill these at the velocity with which we exit the back door after the service. I suppose I'm left to presume that it happens in small groups during the week or in other activities, but listen, the best practice, the best way to live out these resolves in our context is what we're doing here this very morning. Now, I'm not trying to bang you over the head with this. I understand. I understand that Aunt Marla has retirement parties after church. I understand that the pager's going off and the kids are in the nursery going wild and you have to go get them. I get that. I get that, but can I just say that there's a vast difference between that and scurrying out the door so we can go to the lake? Or getting home to cook lunch sooner than later? The Lord's day is not merely the Lord's hour, and these one another's are so important. So important. Realize this exhorting, this stirring up, this stimulating of one another, it can't just come from the pulpit. It's got to come from Dave and Bill and Susie. It's got to come from you and I. I just picked ambiguous names, by the way. It's got to come from one another. Listen, church restoration happens long before you hear it publicly. It starts when you say, hey, brother, I see what you're doing there, and I don't think God likes it. In fact, I know he's not pleased with it. Why don't you come on back? Come back into fellowship. Let me help you. Let me counsel you. Let me pray with you through this. Exercising the one and others. 1 John 1, 7 says this, If we're walking in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with one another, and you have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is important. This is one of the evidences of a true believer that they love one another. That they live not just for themselves anymore, but for the body, for one another. Do you love one another? Do you love being with the body? This is one of the evidences of true salvation. I don't know all who listens to this this morning, but remember, a digital sermon can never replace doctrine with the body. It is important that we assemble together. I know, I realize this morning that there's some who would love to be with us. They're in nursing homes or in various places and they can't be, but I'm talking about those of you who are able and unwilling. Listen, to conceive of real vigorous spiritual growth outside of consistent corporate worship with the body, it's foolish. I just say it's foolish. You and I need to be with one another. We need to sit under the music and under the preaching and under the praying of the word. Don't come like I used to, to grace as a young believer. In at 1044, out at 1201, eating steaks and eggs, 
steak and eggs and getting spiritually plump without giving to the body. And, and let me just add this for my own sake as much as yours. It's important to understand this passage, this text as a whole. For there's others of us here, and this, was, this is why I write this, because this is where I would be more tempted. There's others of us here who might be more willing to congratulate ourselves on never missing a Sunday in 10 years. You come and you assemble, but you do not draw near to the throne room of grace and confidence. So it's important that we follow this, not just by the letter, but by the spirit of the command here. This is too convicting, isn't it? We better move on to the next part of the text. He says, all the more as you see the day approaching, the day I think most imminently talking about the destruction of the temple that would only happen a few years in 70 AD when Titus would come in, he would ransack Jerusalem and he would take over and he would destroy the temple. But most fully, most holistically in the eschatological or in the end time sense of this word, the day, the coming back, the return of our Lord Jesus that will happen. In every minute that I teach, the time draws nearer and nearer. The time towards what? Lunch? No. Some of us feel more hungry than we do holy right now, I can tell. The time, the day when Jesus Christ will return, when he will come back for his saints, and judgment day approaches. I get hangry, by the way. Hangry, hungry, and angry at the same time. But you can't blame it on your low blood sugar, especially in a setting like this. Just come to the biblical counseling conference in a few weeks. You'll learn about that. <laughs> the day draws near. And for some of you, for some of you, that day, you ought to be very afraid because you haven't yet drawn near to the throne room of grace. You need to be sprinkled. You need to be washed in the blood. You need to be cleansed. So unbelievers, if you are here, if you can hear me, repent and turn to Christ. Do an about face. The things you once loved, pray that God would make you hate them. Pray that he would turn you in love for one another and love for him. That you may enter in because, listen, God's patience, his forbearance, his long-suffering, rich as it is, and it is rich. It has an end. And for us believers, for us believers, these two reasons, these three resolves, the implications of these are big. They're magnanimous. So let us reflect. Let us reflect. In Christ or because of Christ, remember the theological foundation we built, because of what Christ has done, because of his blood, draw near to God. Hold fast to your hope. And look around. No, really, look around. Stimulate one another on towards love and good deeds. That's faith, hope, and love. All these practicums, all these things we've talked about, these resolves best exercised in the sacred assembly. Christ Church, what we have the privilege of doing here this morning. Can I just say you matter to the body here? You matter in this body. When you forsake the assembling together, either in body or in spirit, whether you're here or not really here, you're missed. You are. You matter in the body. You matter to me. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. Implication, you're stuck with me. <laughs> and I'm stuck with you. 
And can I just say, I love that. This is my favorite day of the week, and I don't say that by any means to exalt myself, because I have to pray, Lord, help me to love the body. Help me to love one another. But I love this day. I love seeing you guys in the hallways and visiting with you and talking with you. The one another's, we must exercise them. So brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged in victory. Celebrate where you see the Lord working these things out in your life. Where you see sin, either omission or commission, repent of that. Take it to God and ask for forgiveness. And maybe foremost of all, adore the work in the person of Jesus Christ that much more because of what we've read in his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for your steadfast love, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Get glory for yourself. Lord, we pray, convict us of sin, encourage us to press on, to hold fast to the faith. God, we ask this together, because and for the name of Jesus, amen.